And welcome to Northridge Church, man. I can't tell you how excited we are to have you. Welcome to our campuses. Welcome to our guests and welcome to our regular attenders. We are honored to have you here this morning. If you got your Bibles, James chapter 4, I'd encourage you to grab your Bible or your physical, one of your physical devices, your phone, jump to James chapter 4. We also have an app, the Northridge Church app. You can take notes along with today's sermon. It helps you take it throughout the week. And as you make your way to James chapter 4, I'm I'm curious about something. I think this number is going to be pretty low, but if you've ever ridden or driven in a Tesla, show me your hands. Come on. You ever ridden or driven in the Tesla? Okay, second service, a little bit more than first service, but not that many people. And I remember the first time my buddy Nate, he tends the Webster campus. He just got a, a, a new Tesla about six months ago, and he took me on a ride and drive experience. And it was it was crazy. Um, the acceleration of those vehicles, it's like entering warp speed. You're kind of like a roller coaster. It's crazy. But one of the most memorable moments um, from that ride was we were driving down the highway. We were going around 70 miles an hour. And Nate looks over, he taps me, and he says, Drew, watch this. And if you know Nate, watch this. It's never, uh, it never leaves a good feeling in your stomach, okay? He's a little wild and crazy. And so he pushes a couple of buttons on his steering wheel. And all of a sudden, he takes his hands off the steering wheel and he throws them into his pocket. Now, I know sometimes I do the same thing when I'm driving down a highway, right? Okay, I'm just going to kind of relax. It'll kind of go straight. The problem was we were about ready to exit, the highway. And our exit went up and around. And so Nate just kind of puts his hand in his pocket. He's relaxed. He's chill. And I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? He's like, relax. No worries. And so we're, we're here. And I'm like, okay, the car slowly goes into the right lane, the exit lane. And we're starting to go up this exit ramp. And I'm thinking in my mind, okay, Nate, cool joke grab the stinking steering wheel, and I look over, and Nate's just relaxed. He's chill, and I'm like, Lord, I am, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am ready for you, God. Like, yeah, that's what I thought was gonna happen to the car. Like, I'm ready, and we're going up this embankment, and if we go straight, like, we're donezo. God, tell my kids I love them. Game is over. And Nate's over there just like, and all of a sudden, this car slowly goes up, and I mean, the car drives better than Nate could drive it, and it literally goes up and around the corner, and I'm like, I don't want to do that again. Like, Nate's like, Drew, wasn't that amazing? I was like, I think so. <laughs> yeah, that was, well, that was incredible, but I didn't like it. And you want to know why I didn't like it? Because I wasn't in control. Literally, I had just gotten into the car, and I had to trust it with my life. And I don't know about you, but I like control, especially when it comes to my life. I like to dictate how it goes, when it goes, and where it goes. And you guessed it, today we're going to wrestle with the subtle sin of control. Because all of us, it doesn't matter who we are, we like Control, we crave it, we desire it. And if you haven't been with us, uh, we've been in this series for three weeks, a series called Subtle Sins of Society. And what we're doing in this series is for seven weeks, we're navigating some things in our life that have become so normal that we become blind to them. 
Blind to the fact that they actually live in rebellion to God. They're sinful. And in week one, we talked about the subtle sin of comfort. That we like comfort too much. Second week, we talked about the subtle sin of comparison. How we often choose to compare our lives to somebody else's life to justify our worth. Last week, Connell crushed it by talking about the subtle sin of gossip. And today, we're going to wrestle through this subtle sin of control. I love what one quoter said about their life. They said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And honestly, that's how most of us live. We are the captain of our lives. We are the master of our fates. And I always wondered, why do we crave control so much? Well, honestly, at the root of it, the truth of it is we believe our way is better than God's. Control makes us have a sense of security. We like known more than we like unknown. We look at our life and we say, hey, it's my life. I should have a say in it. And when we accomplish things, if we're in control, we get the credit and the accolades for it. And the way that we, we fight for control is in, in so many areas of our life, many of us, we, we fight for control with our finances by if we have a certain amount in our bank account and a certain amount coming in, we feel like we're in control. Many of us fight for control with our children by protecting them from any danger out there and making every choice for them. We control our kids. Many of us, we, we fight for control by, by, with our health by, you know, eating certain foods, taking our vitamins, and, and going to the gym. Many of us fight for our future because we believe if we go to the right school and get the right job, we are okay. Heck, we love control so much, we even try to control God. We control, manipulate God by doing all the right things, therefore God has to give us blessings. And you see, control becomes sinful when we trust more in our actions than God's. Control becomes sinful, becomes a subtle sin when I believe my way is better than God's. I believe my wisdom, my strength will take me farther than God's. It's a subtle sin, and James is going to attack it in James chapter 4 in a little bit of a unique way way. If you got your Bibles here, James 4, we pick it up in verse 13. He says this, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Now James is describing a person ultimately who makes plans. It's all of us, really, and the person he illustrates is a business person, a person who looks at this city or that city and says, you know what, I'm going to go there, I'm going to build my business for a year, I'm going to make money. But ultimately, James is really describing all of us because we all make plans, right? Many of you right now are making plans. Some of you are making plans to get married You're making plans to switch careers. You're making plans to move to a different location. Some of you are making plans for retirement and what that will look like. Some of you are making plans to have kids, grow your family. Some of you are making plans to go to a college or not. We all make plans. But what's interesting is what James says about our plans. Look what he says. He says, why? Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? 
You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So James says, why make plans? I want to pause here. Because what James is not saying is making plans is a bad thing. In fact, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, if you read the Proverbs, we know that the Bible teaches planning ahead is a wise practice. So James is not getting at people who make plans, but he's teaching us in this battle of control, we have to learn to hold on to our plans loosely. Because ultimately, we are not in control. And see, when we struggle with this subtle sin of control, we believe lies. We, we make wrong assumptions. And the first wrong assumption that James attacks that we believe is that we are guaranteed more time. Isn't it fascinating how we make plans all the time, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road, and we have no clue if we'll ever make it to those plans. And James reminds us that although you think you might get there, you might not. He says, what is your life? What is your life? How long? Well, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And we all have moments in our life where, where this reality hits us in the face, where we made plans and those plans are foiled. Right? I get it. Because I had a lot of plans to hang out with my dad, to go on boat rides to see him invest in my children, to just be together. And three years ago, in an instant, my dad died. And every plan I had was shattered, gone. And James says, why do we make plans? And when we do pl make plans, remember, control, even though you think you're in it, you're really not. And so you have to hold those plans loosely because you're not guaranteed more time. The second wrong assumption that James comes after is that what we have is what we have accomplished, right? It's easy when you believe you're in control to look at your life, to examine the things that you have and say, wow, look at all I've achieved, right? Think about your life. Think about all the things you have, the home you live in, the cars that you drive, the children that you have, the marriage that you have the family that you have. Think about all, every little detail, every little thing in your life. And it's easy for us who believe we're in control, fight for control to think, man, look at all I have done. The problem with that assumption is it doesn't line up with what scripture teaches. In fact, look what Paul asks. He asks a, a pointed question in 1 Corinthians. He's, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You see, Paul reminds us by, through a pointed question, he says, hey, what do you have that God didn't give you? And I know some people will push back, like, Drew, I went to work, God didn't. Drew, I did all these things to earn that thing. Uh, you don't understand, we did the work. But let me tell you, who, who gave you the ability to do all that work? You see, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive from God? The answer is nothing then why do we boast in our lives about all that we've achieved when really God allowed us to achieve it? Look what Proverbs says. It says, many are the plans in a person's heart. That's what James is talking about, right? Why do we plan, right? We don't, what is our life? He said, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Let me say it a different way in a different Proverbs. Proverbs 16, it says, in their hearts, humans plan their course. That is all of us. We all have plans for our lives, but the Lord establishes their steps. 
So James reminds us, you're not guaranteed more time, and what you have, you didn't achieve. The third wrong assumption we make when we live in control is that somehow there's a spiritual formula to God's blessing. Right? We love and crave control so much that we are so proud that we actually believe we can control God. And here's how we do it. We treat God like a vending machine. I love vending machines, right? As a parent of four, I hate vending machines. <laughs> Every restaurant, I hate when they have the gumball machines everywhere, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Daddy, can I have 45 quarters to rot my teeth out? They're not gumballs anymore, kids. They're jawbreakers, okay? They've been in there that long. Okay, I digress. Anyway, here we go. A vending machine. What do you do? I love a vending machine, right? You put the right amount of quarters in or dollars, and now they take credit cards, and you push a button, and out comes this beautiful blessing from God if it doesn't get stuck in the stupid coil, okay? So out comes, and, and this is what happens, right? We treat God the same way. We believe that, that God's blessing is a formula. If I put the right things in, if I fast and I pray and I read my Bible and I go to church and I give back to the church, if I put all of that in, I am forcing God's hand to bless me. God, if I do all the right things, I do all the religious practices, you therefore must bless me because that's what your word says it will do, you will do. And here's what I've seen about so many Christians in their walk with God, including mine. We do the spiritual things to get from God rather than be with God. Do you ever think maybe the blessing is just getting to be with God? Does God always have to give us something? Isn't the gift just that we get to dwell in the presence of God? Can I ask you today, do you really love God? Or are you just using God to get what you want? Right? James says there's a different way to live. He says, hey, many people live this way. We make plans. And he says, hey, let me show you this illustration, right? He says, what is your life? It's like a, it's like a mist that comes and vanishes. You see, what we don't realize is when it comes to time, the way God sees our lives. He says, you don't understand. This is what your life looks like from a heavenly perspective. It's there and then it's gone, right? This is God's view of your life. Wow, look at the mist. There it is, and there it isn't. He says, why do we make plans when we don't know what will come tomorrow? But James says there's a, a different way to live. Look what he says. He says, instead, he says, instead, maybe we should try this. Maybe as Christ followers, we should look a little differently. He says, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And so what James is teaching us in the scriptures is he says, hey, as a Christ follower who is being sanctified, looking more like Christ, we should look different. We should act different. And instead of chasing our will, we should chase God's will. James teaches us how to surrender control over our lives. And he says the first step is you have to know the Lord's will. Now, I get that's kind of like a, a hard subject, right? What is God's will for my life? Many of us ask that question over every choice that we make. God, what do you want? And what we feel like is God's will is this ever-chasing thing that we never find. But can I tell you today, I believe as I read the scriptures, God wants you to know what he wants for your life. 
God wants you to know his will for your life. And here's the problem we have, is God's will for your life is process-oriented, not outcome-driven. And the best way, the best way to know what God wants for your life is to know God, to get to know him. Right? I'm amazed at how many people want to know God's will but won't take the time to get to know God, won't read his word, won't spend time in prayer with him, and they wonder why God's will is this ever-chasing, running-away thing. I mean, honestly, how can you know anybody's will if you don't know them? The best way to know God's will, practical steps, is read his word. Sometimes God's like, hey, you're searching for my will. I've already told you how I feel. It's right there in the book. All you gotta do is pick it up. Read it. You surround yourself with godly people who will push you towards God's word. You spend time in conversation with God through prayer. And listen, knowing God's will doesn't mean you know the outcome of everything. There's gonna be a lot of times where God goes a direction that you didn't see coming. That's what makes him God and you not. We have to remember this is about knowing God. Let me put it to you like this. I'm a dad of four children. I have an age range from nine to one. And let's just say my older three, Malachi, Ruby, Kate, and Joel, came up to me as their father. And we're like, Daddy, listen, we just want to, to be good children. We want to please you, Daddy. We want to know what you want for our lives, and we want to obey you. And they were like, how do we do that, Dad? Can you imagine me as a father looking at my children and be like, well, I can't reveal that to you right now. I know, you know what? You're just going to have to figure it out on your own. Good luck. Go on, go on, kids. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Would that be a loving father? And yet that's how we feel towards God. We feel like, oh, he doesn't want us to know. I think he actually revealed his will to us. We just have to spend the time to get to know him in a relationship. So we have to know God's will. The second way that we, we let go of control is we learn to boast only in the Lord. You see, what happens when we boast in the Lord is it does something subtle in our heart, in our head. It reminds us that everything that we have, everything that we achieve is not on our accord, but it's on God's. And so when you, something good happens in your life. When your life goes your way, when, when things go good at work or with your children, we learn to say, God, thank you, because I know you're responsible for that. But here's what happens. When we live in control of our lives, what it declares is it declares how small our God is. Because think about how proud it is. Think about how, how arrogant it is to think that me, human me, thinks that my way is better than the God of the universe's way. Think about how proud that is. Think about how proud it is for me to say, God, I know this direction for my life is better than the God who put the stars in the universe. That's pretty prideful. And James actually teaches us when we step into pride, look what he says. James says, God opposes the proud. Think about how strong of a language that is, that God actually opposes you when you live with pride. That you're on actually a different team than God. And you're going different directions of God. So can I tell you an action step that takes away the pride in your life? This week, throughout your life, when you receive a blessing, small or big, when you accomplish something, 
When you get a promotion, when your kids do the right thing, when your business is booming, when your job is awesome, when things are going your way, boast in the Lord. Praise God for it. Give him the glory and the credit because what that does is it teaches your heart and your mind that he's in control. So we know God's will. We boast only in the Lord. The last step is the hardest. It's one thing to know God's will. It's a whole nother level to submit to the Lord's way. Right, that word submission, nobody likes it. The only person we like to submit to is ourselves. And what's hard about this is there's gonna come a point in your life when you walk with the Lord. It might be early, it might be in the journey of walking with God. There's gonna come a point in your life where you believe your way is better than God's where you believe God's way is actually old-fashioned, where you believe God's way doesn't make sense, where you believe God's way is antiquated. It's it's not going with the culture. God should change his way. And there's gonna come a point in your life where there's this tension. I think my way is better, God. And you still have to submit to his way. Trust him. Relinquish control. God, I trust you. Because control is something we all battle with. And so let me remind you of the truth. Proverbs 16, it says, In their hearts, humans plan their course. Can I ask you today, what are you planning? You planning to go to college? Planning to change your degree? You planning to jump into high school? You planning to switch careers? You planning to go into retirement? What are you planning today to get married, to ask the girl of your dreams to marry you? I know we all have plans, from big plans to little plans. In your hearts, we plan our course, but the Lord establishes our steps. Let me say it to you differently. Many are the plans in my in your heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. See, even when we think we're in control, we're really not. And so we have to get our lives to a point where we trust God, no matter the circumstance, no matter the choice. We need to get our lives where we can say, I trust in the Lord with all my heart where I won't lean on my knowledge, my wisdom, my capacity, but I will lean on his understanding in every area of my life, in all my ways, I will what? I will submit to him. Even it doesn't make sense, even though I don't like it. And God will make my path straight. And listen, that's one of the hardest things to do in Christianity. Because there's going to come a point in your life. There came a point in my life where God's will, I couldn't reconcile it. Can I tell you, I, to, to this day, three years later, I still can't imagine a world where it's better for my dad to be gone. I can't imagine a world where I don't get to hang out with my dad, and that's better. I can't imagine a world where my children don't get to see pop anymore. 
Like, God, I, I can't make sense of this. It doesn't make sense. If you ask me, my way was a whole lot better than your way, God. And it's in those moments in our life where we have to, as hard as it is, we have to let go and trust and submit to his way. Even when we believe ours is better. God whispers, Drew, you don't get it, but you will. One day you will. To let go of control. And I remember the moment I did that. It was pretty quick, honestly. I still wrestled through it, but at my dad's funeral, we sang a song. We're about to sing it. And in this song, it's a declaration. It says, yes, I am choosing to praise God in the highest of highs and the worst of worse. When my life is booming and exciting, I'll praise you, God. But when my life sucks, I'll praise you, God. And at that funeral, I preached my dad's funeral. I made that decision that, God, I don't like it. I can't stand it. I don't think it's right. But I will praise you despite it. 